Blog Talk Radio. Thank you for tuning in to ALR PRA's Law Talk Radio. I'm your host, Nick Augustine. This show is produced by ALR PRA Incorporated, a national law practice management agency headquartered downtown Chicago, Illinois, and serving greater Chicago, Los Angeles, New York, and Washington, D.C. We also partner with U.S. and international law firms for international legal issues. We help manage our clients' business so they can spend more time practicing law. Our primary activities are law firm public relations, marketing, and credentialing. We also offer a wide variety of practice management services to help you with all the back-end business of managing a law firm. Now, today's guest is Attorney Sahir Aziz. Can you please help me if I pronounce that? Uh, Sahar Aziz. Sahar Aziz. And... Hold on for one second. Okay, sorry about that. We had a bit of technical glitch there. And Sahar is going to talk to us today um, on many of the issues that have affected those in Egypt. I know that I, this is a special broadcast, and I put feelers out there for guests some time ago. Um, so we're very happy to have Sahar Aziz here on the show today. She is a civil rights attorney of Egyptian descent and an adjunct professor at Georgetown University Law Center and a legal fellow at the Institute for Social Policy and Understanding. Ms. Aziz's practice focuses on immigration, employment, and civil rights matters. Ms. Aziz also advises nonprofit organizations in development effective strategies and programs to achieve their institutional objectives. For her website and more information, you can visit www.sahraziz.law.com. So, www.sahiraziz.law.com. So, we do have a great show for you this afternoon, and we invite caller questions either by email directly at nick, N I C K, at A L R P R A dot com with Law Talk Radio in the subject line. Or please call in by dialing area code 917-889-9732 and press option 1 to be placed in the caller queue. The telephone number again is area code 889-9732 and the 917 area code option 1 again to be placed in the queue. By way of disclaimer, this is a general information program and the advice shared on this show does not constitute legal advice. Results may vary and are based on specific facts and location. Communication with our attorney guests among guests and callers on this show does not give rise to an attorney-client relationship. If you have further questions, you are encouraged to consult with an attorney and or professional in your area. This program is politically neutral and objective, and counterpoints to views expressed on this program are always welcome. Finally, our callers do remain confidential, and all rights to this broadcast are reserved by ALR PRA Incorporated. Before we get moving this morning, we have a few announcements to read you. Number one, the international software and technology law firm of Marcus Stephen Harris, LLC, presents their software licensing webinar this coming February 15, 2011. Negotiating software licenses is a complicated process that takes knowledge and skill. Changing technology and new methods for software development and delivery have changed the game. The consequences of getting it wrong can be severe. This webinar will focus on the understanding of software licenses, their legal background, and how to maximize your rights while minimizing your risks during the negotiation process. Marcus Harris is an attorney who works with technology companies, software developers, and users regarding software development, licensing, ownership, and distribution. Prior to entering the private practice, he was a senior corporate counsel at SSA Global Technologies, a global ERP software vendor. 
Mr. Harris also worked in the legal contracts department of SAP, where he drafted and negotiated hundreds of technology-related agreements with SAP's Fortune 500 customer base. For more information about Marcus Stephen Harris, please visit www.mshtechlaw.com. And if you would like to attend this webinar, you can find a link on the law firm's blog under the Publications tab. Additionally, as ALRPRA is promoting this event, you can email me for more information. My email again is nick at ALRPRA.com, and we thank you for passing on this information to others. Secondly, we want to let you know that Mary Erlane, who works to help professionals learn the skill of connecting the dots and removing the barriers, will be back on March 15, 2011 from 8 to 9.30, where she'll conduct a hands-free Leadership for Women workshop for women rainmakers and leaders in business. This event will be held in the large boardroom at 35 East Wacker Drive in Chicago, and ALRPRA is sponsoring your registration fees, making this a free event. Come by and enjoy a light breakfast and enjoy this pragmatic and acclaimed executive leadership workshop. The Leadership for Women program includes content on issues affecting women in business such as statistics, barriers, positive leadership qualities of women, goal setting, the challenges of, conduct, of conditioning, and the formula for success. When you attend Mary's workshops, you'll learn how to build a positive image, understand motivation, approach the challenges of leadership, time management, and communication. Space is limited, so please register today by emailing nick at alrpra.com with women rainmakers and business leaders in the subject line if you'd like to reserve your complimentary seat at this workshop. ALRPRA is a Chambers Executive Suites tenant, and we want to thank Chambers for co-sponsoring this event. Now, without further ado, I would like to introduce our guest today, Sahir Aziz, will be talking to us about the things going on in Egypt and the political issues, what many are calling uh, a revolution. We'll talk about food shortages, medicine shortages, neighborhood watches, um, activity by the government, the role of international security, the United States' role in the crisis, while also the impact on the region, origins of the movement, and the role of the Muslim Brotherhood. So we do look forward to your questions during the show, 917-889-9732. Sahir, how are you doing today? I want to thank you for being part of our program. Well, thank you for having me. Um, It's obviously a very historic point in history right now with everything that's going on in Egypt, and frankly, a lot of people, including myself and people inside of Egypt and outside of Egypt, did not see this coming. Uh, So it's a pleasure to be here, and these are certainly important times. I thank you so much for for your valuable time, and I did uh, also invite others to participate. We're going to do a follow-up show in about a week or so. One of the people I talked to was uh, an actually intellectual property attorney in Cairo. Uh, he thanked me for the invitation but said he was not in a good mood to talk about this issue right now. Um, I had another Egyptian native who's an attorney in California who said that it was amazing how technology such as Facebook is the greatest power equalizer and that young Egyptians are looking to a brighter future. He also says the world is changing and countries everywhere have led to the response and that Egypt is just the beginning. So um, can we just start by, if you could share with us the mood of the people and what you're hearing, because we want to know how these issues uh, affect people from a legal standpoint, but also as a human rights standpoint, how is this affecting people in Egypt? How is it affecting Egyptians in America? Um, We want to know how this touches everyone. Well, the mood in Egypt right now from those I've spoken to, which are my friends and family, is uh, full of anxiety. People are extremely stressed out. They don't know 
what to expect. Uh, there is, the police are not on the streets, at least in the neighborhoods, and those that are, they don't trust them. So right now, the average e- Egyptian citizen's concern, those that are not on Tahrir Square protesting, is really public safety and making sure that all of the criminals who were released from prison, and many believe that Mubarak purposely released them from prison as a way to collectively punish them, are wandering the streets, and these are murderers, thieves, uh, rapists, etc. So everybody has set up neighborhood watches uh, composed of the young men in their neighborhood, and they take shifts, and they have baseball bats or some kind of I mean, very few people in Egypt own guns, so they they have some alternative way of defending themselves. And then they, <clears throat> excuse me, they make sure that they check IDs and frisk everyone, and make sure that whoever wants to come into their specific neighborhood actually lives there and belongs there, because they're very concerned that criminals are going to come and rape their women and rob their houses and try to kill them. So. That's one major concern. The other is food. There aren't severe food shortages at the moment. Um, A few days ago, the stores started to run out of food, and there wasn't a resupply, so people were very stressed. But they said that today there's been the grocery stores have started to get more food. Again, hopefully they won't get looted because there was some looting that was going on. And then ultimately they're just very – they don't know what's going to happen, as you can see from the media. It's been good and bad. It's been very tumultuous, where in the beginning it was a peaceful demonstration, and then the police a few days later hit hard and started beating people, and then the police withdrew completely, and things were more peaceful. And then, you know, yesterday they brought in the camels and the horses and many government hired thugs. And it's, there's been a lot of evidence of that, that they're essentially police that are in plain clothes or very, very poor people who have been paid to go into Tahrir and beat everybody up and try to kick them out. Um, so every day is uh, unpredictable. And, and I think ultimately many people, I, I have to say there's certainly a fatigue among many of the Egyptians. They, I think some of them are ready to just move on with their lives. The economy is at a standstill. The schools are closed. The banks are closed. I mean, life is completely stopped, and everyone is either at the protest or locked up in their house. Uh, So there's a significant portion of the population that would like to move on. Uh, The question is how. Um, And there's a big debate between there is a group of people who think that Mubarak should just stay his term and, and transition uh, the government, there are other, and that would lead, that would allow all the demonstrations to stop the economy to start up again and, and, and Egypt to kind of get on with business. The other perspective is, no, if he stays, he's going to use that time to imprison all of the protesters and torture them and execute them and entrench his power more, and his cronies or his clique is going to uh, just use those six months to ensure this never happens again and that they solidify their power so there's a deep, there is a divide and there's a deep distrust of Mubarak, and he uh, is known for being a very, very savvy leader. He is not, although yeah, he is a dictator, but he is not Saddam Hussein. He is not a brutal, ruthless dictator with his people, and doesn't not in the same way he was. That's not to say he doesn't have a record of torturing his opposition, but his the way he's ruled Egypt for 30 years has been with carrots and sticks, and he's very savvy at. Uh, manipulating public opinion through the media and through speeches and through certain policies that keeps them at subsistence level, but certainly not in a democratic system or fully empowered 
or with the tools they need to, for example, challenge his authority. So he's a very politically savvy dictator. Um, and I think that's important to distinguish him from people like Saddam Hussein, who was just ruthless. He was he was known for his brutality and known for his ruthlessness that was above and beyond even the average dictator in the Middle East. Now, when you talk about people in the neighborhoods protecting uh, local citizens, can you describe the the people who would be out there on behalf of Mubarak's government to stop the protesters? Uh, what types of people are these? Are these young people uh, who are, are, already, are already affiliated with a group, or are they being recruited? Who, how, do, how do you know who's safe and who's not? Oh, well, as far as the protesting itself is, is, my understanding is it's really centered in downtown Cairo, the, the uh, political activity, the political protests. Um, and so that's there's kind of two different situations. Uh, in, in that context, uh, the general belief is that most of the people who were engaged, who started the violence uh, when it was originally peaceful, were Mubarak either police forces who were in plain clothes or non-police but very poor people who were paid. And they admitted to that to many of the pro-reform demonstrators or pro-democracy demonstrators, and they said, look, I, they paid me 200 pounds to come in here and try to run you out of uh, Liberation Square. And 200 pounds mm-hmm. poor person is almost a year's worth of, of income. Now, in the neighborhoods, which I guess those are the suburbs, and these are 10 miles away, for example, that is more, they're more concerned there with just the criminals who have been released from the prisons. They're concerned with more garden variety crime in the form of murder and robbery and rape. And they're afraid that those people are going to go into their neighborhoods and um, physically harm them, as opposed to the government hired thugs who were, it appears that their objective is primarily to try to evacuate Tahrir so that the government can take over Tahrir again, which is Liberation Square downtown, and then prevent any um, mass demonstration again and, and kind of take control physically of of the city. So those are two different um, contexts. Very, very interesting. The price that we pay for liberation and freedom is a high price at many times. We're going to pause quickly for our first commercial break and then be back with more from a professor, law, an adjunct law professor and uh, Ms. Sahir Aziz, who is talking to us today about the issues affecting those in Egypt. Our first commercial break comes from attorney Nancy K. Ducharme. Attorney Nancy K. Ducharme brings big law firm experience and reputation to her intellectual property law firm serving national corporate clients in the areas of trademark, copyright, internet law, and advertising law. You can find the law office of Nancy K. Ducharme by visiting nkdlaw.com and also by searching for the law office of Nancy K. Ducharme on Facebook. By clicking the like button on the law firm's business page, you will receive periodic blog updates with recent developments in the rapidly changing field of intellectual property law. Our second sponsor is The Lawyer Market. Let me tell you, this website is one of the best-kept secrets for solos and small firms trying to market their practices. You can join The Lawyer Market for free, and the online legal marketplace will actually send you the name and contact information of consumers who are interested in hiring you. The Lawyer Marketplace offers a win-win solution to its listed attorneys and the potential clients searching for their legal services. Please visit thelawyermarket.com forward slash lawyers for more information. That website again is 
www.thelawyermarket.com forward slash lawyers. Now back to our show. Anyone who is interested in calling in with a question may dial area code 917-889-9732. Press option 1 to be placed in the queue. Again, comments and suggestions are always welcome by email. Email is nick, N-I-C-K, at A-L-R-P-R-A.com. And now we are back with Sahir Aziz. Sahir, we were talking a little bit about the people in the neighborhoods uh, fearing for their safety. What about uh, international security forces there? What is the government doing to help uh, and or to fuel some of the terror uh, that we're seeing on reports on TV? Uh, are you, when you say government, are you talking about the Egyptian government or the American government? Well, Bo, I'm, I'm interested first in what the Egyptian government is doing and how they're reacting, and then what U.S. and other countries uh, have, what you're seeing over, the, well, what you have seen or reports of. Right. Well, the Egyptian government, it's an interesting situation. The, the Egyptians uh, generally despise the internal police force, which is the equivalent here of, for example, the FBI or the DEA, uh, law enforcement that would fall under the Department of Justice. Uh, so they're counterparts in Egypt. They are detested. Uh, they are known for being extremely brutal. They usually do the dirty work of the regime in the form of torture, uh, abductions, kidnappings, etc., focused primarily on political opposition. But they also engage in the daily harassments of the average person, um, demanding bribes, uh, just general harassment of people. That's usually through the police force. So mm -hmm. they have, as you've seen in the media, that at first they came down hard and were abusing people, and then uh, they completely withdrew, and the, no one can figure out why. There's two theories on why they were withdrawn. One was that Mubarak told them to withdraw, so, hoping that there would be public safety chaos and that the people would be begging him to stay because without him, chaos would, would reign in Egypt, and that didn't work. The second reason uh, that, uh, or the second theory, I should say, behind their withdrawal is that because he fired the ministry minister of interior, who was advised by the Egyptian people, uh, that he told his people to withdraw as a way to punish Mubarak as revenge. No one knows what the truth is, but the point is they are now not really key players, um, other than being in plain clothes and, and, and trying to pretend as if they are pro-Mubarak. Uh, mm -hmm. Now, and, but as you can see, the military is highly respected, and they're in the streets, but they've been playing a very neutral, hands-off role. They only intervene by shooting in the sky when things are about to get very bad and then scares some of the, the infighting among uh, the people. Uh, and then, But they're just sitting there, essentially watching, and, and the Egyptian people have been trying to persuade them, or I say the pro-reform demonstrators have been trying to persuade them to to be on their side, but they're, they've taken a neutral position thus far. But having said that, the military really holds all the cards internally. Is No one can rule Egypt without being uh, having the military on their side. It's not a military government, per se, and, and Egyptians certainly do not want to be, from what I her, they do not want to be ruled by a military regime. However, uh, it is no coincidence that, for example, Mubarak used to be the head of the Air Force. He has the credentials, he has military credentials, and um, usually the leaders, tend, and same thing with Anwar Sadat, same thing with Gamal Abdel Nasser. So 
you can't rule Egypt without having a good relationship with the military. And that's one reason why I think the United States, going into the international focus, has been very, very cautious because they know that uh, I don't think the United States wants a military regime there. And I think that they know that they hold the cards, and I presume that many of the negotiations behind the scenes have been to try to get uh, have been focused on military leaders and trying to persuade them to do X or Y, whatever it is that the U.S. leaders want. As far as international intervention, I haven't seen anything, frankly, and I think the EU has been very slow in responding. I think they just started issuing some releases of, of shunning violence. Uh, the U.S. is engaged in rhetoric that's been increasingly more forceful. You know, it started out very weak and then uh, every day, I think, you know, Secretary Clinton is becoming more forceful in, in or criticizing the violence. But there, the UN hasn't done anything. There are no international forces there that I can see. And I think that's a great question is, you know, what is the role of the UN here and should the UN intervene and, and if they do, how? And the reason why I think that's extremely important is because there is a very legitimate concern that if the United States plays too vocal and too open of a role in trying to, for example, depose Mubarak, that it will this entire uprising will be undermined as a foreign conspiracy. And that is a conspiracy that will gain traction in Egypt. And it, in, there's a lot of concerns of international intervention in the Middle East in general, and for good reason, because there's a history of that. So I think the United States is in a difficult position, and Obama's in a difficult position, even if he wants Mubarak to step down. He has to be very careful not to make it look like he orchestrated uh, the uprising or America orchestrated it and that the pro-democracy demonstrators are not, in fact, your average Egyptians who have genuine grievances, economic, social, political, but, in fact, they are lackeys of America, and this is all a way to weaken Egypt. Because those types of rumors, uh, they do... They are believed uh, just because of the history of British intervention, French intervention, et cetera, and colonialism. So it's not an easy situation from the international perspective. But, again, I think it all goes back to the military and trying to figure out, uh, you know, how you can get the military to intervene in a way that's constructive and that, cre that produces a peaceful transition of power. Well, it would seem to me that keeping peace um, is one way immediately to ensure safety, um, but what about communication? Communication among people and the military, I'm not sure uh, how much the military impacts that, but what what do you know or what can you share with us regarding the flow of communication? I know that many people were without internet or cell phone. Uh, I saw many posts on Facebook sharing uh, numerical IP addresses and other things for people to communicate because there was an infrastructure um, problem with the control of information. What can you share with us on that? Well, there was certainly a blackout. The country, no one thought it could happen to any country, but obviously it can. They were completely offline for about two or three days. No Internet, no Facebook, no cell service. The landlines were always working. And that created a lot of anxiety among the Egyptian-American community and the diaspora and anyone who had family there because, uh, you know, when you can't, uh, when you have no communication, sometimes you can assume the worst, regardless of what the, the facts are. 
So that was certainly a very stressful time. Uh, but I believe, well, he certainly turned it back on, and I believe it's because there was a lot of international pressure, at least from the United States, but also it may it just created even more economic harm where business stood still, literally every form of business. So I heard a stat that Egypt was losing 18 million pounds a day when the Internet and the cell phone services were cut off. Now, they're back on. They came on, I believe, about 24 hours ago or 36 hours ago. And so people are back on Facebook, back on email. Uh, cell phones are working. Sometimes they're a little spotty. Mm-hmm. And they did kick most of the well, – I shouldn't say kick. They bullied and abused uh, most of the journalists out of Tahrir Square. And very, if you notice on the news, no one has a camera in Tahrir Square. The journalists are undercover, literally. And they're not even identifying themselves when they talk to um, CNN or, or Al Jazeera English, et cetera. So that has they've been trying to uh, avoid any coverage of of the protests, at least via camera. The other interesting part is their Egyptian media, the, the government-owned stations, have broadcasted as if there's nothing happening, which has been quite remarkable. That they have scenes of the Nile, very peaceful scenes of the Nile, or they'll just have pictures of Cairo uh, before anyone was on the street. And they're trying to just pretend as if there's nothing there and trying to tell the people of Egypt this is a very minor protest, this has nothing to, this is not a big deal, everything's under control, and, uh, you know, don't don't take these things seriously and don't join them. I'm just trying to pretend like it will all go away. Well, that's going to be interesting when, now that Internet's back up and people have Facebook, all you need is an iPhone to take pictures and video of what's going on and and share that. So you, it seems to me there's a conflict between um, government media and then what local citizens are going to potentially share with others. Is there a concern from uh, local citizens about sharing some images that, the government or mother of media is not broadcasting. No, I think that genie's been let out of the box, and the Egyptians, for the first time, and I've heard this from many people, have felt free. I think the fear is gone, and everyone knows that, or everyone feels that Mubarak's days are numbered, and they no longer fear, fear the regime. Uh, very few people trust the state media anyway, even before this revolution started. So they know that whatever is being fed to them uh, in the newspapers or in the, on the televisions that are state-owned has never been fully accurate. So they're not surprised. It's just even more extreme than usual. It's it's just so much much more obvious, I should say, than usual. Mm. I have been very impressed with the tenacity of the Egyptians, especially the youth. They are fearless. Everyone now is just fearless. They no longer. Uh, they just don't think the regime has any legitimacy or any power uh, to do anything. And frankly, everyone right now is more concerned with what's the next step and how fast can we start moving in that direction uh, because he's leaving anyway. Should we let him stay the six months? Should we force him out now? If we force him out now, what then? And that brings me to the issue of you know who will be the opposition and what is their platform, and that is still up for debate. I mean, sure. Abaradai, who used to head the International Atomic Energy Association, he does not really have a major following in Egypt. He's perceived as a free rider. 
he lived outside of Egypt for four years, he hasn't suffered with the people, and then suddenly he comes in right after they've made all these huge sacrifices and, and kind of wants to ride the wave, so to speak. So there's a bit of resentment against him that he didn't earn his position to lead the opposition. It's not that they dislike him or hate him that he's done something specific. It's just that he hasn't done anything. He's just kind of come in at the last minute, and it's quite convenient. And he's also not a very charismatic figure. He's older and, and very soft-spoken, so he doesn't have the motivational skills um, to, to, you know, talk to people and talk to the Egyptians who who need a leader right now. The other person people are talking about who just joined the protest is Amr Musa, and he used to be the foreign minister of Egypt. He was extremely popular, very, very popular. And he was so popular that Mubarak uh, stripped him of his position and made him the head of the Arab League, or, or um, he, he didn't do it unilaterally, but he pushed him into being the head of the Arab League, and the Arab League is known for being a completely um, dysfunctional organization that has very little influence, so he was essentially exiled from being the foreign minister to being the head of the Arab League because he became too popular that Mubarak felt threatened. So he's back now in the scene, and I think he has a really good chance of being at least a transitional leader, and because he knows Egypt well, he's been in the cabinet, and he's perceived as someone who is not only pro-democracy, -demo but he's he's got the skills to be able to fix what's going to be a very, very difficult transitional period where Egyptians for the first time are going to have to engage in a real democracy, which means disagreeing with each other, um, putting out their platforms, you know, doing what we do here in America, but that is a, a developed skill. That's a learned skill, and, it, and it's something that you, uh, you know, you have to set the rules of the game, and, and it's going to be a very different experience for them. Very interesting. Um, we're going to take a break uh, for identification and come back with some questions from callers. Uh, for those of you who are just tuning in, you're listening to ALR PRA's Law Talk Radio. Our guest today is uh, Ms. Sahir Aziz, who is an attorney uh, who practices in the area of civil and human rights and is uh, a an adjunct professor at Georgetown University Law Center. We are so very thankful to have her on the program today. We'll be back briefly after we report some news from the AMLAW Daily. Again, during our programming, we always bring you daily legal news. Today's daily legal news, again from the AMLAW Daily, is titled The Score, Redskins Snyder Sues City Paper, Madoff, and the Mets, and more. This is on AMLAW Daily, posted by Brian Baxter. The past two weeks have been busy ones for AMLAW 200 firms representing their clients, usually found in the sports pages. The AMLAW Daily has a quick rundown of the legal eagles suiting up for various players and teams. Snyder hires Glasser for suit against City Paper. It's no secret that Washington Redskins owner Daniel Snyder is not equal, especially popular in the five in D.C. five years without a playoff victory for one of the National Football League's most storied franchises and has made him a lightning rod for criticism among the team's dis diehard fans. But when the Washington City paper published a story last November that compiled what his critics perceive as his most egregious offenses, the owner decided to slap back. Represented by New York's 
Carter, Ladyand, and Milburn, the Los Angeles Glasser, Weil, Fink, Jacobs, Howard, and Shapiro, Snyder filed a 13-page complaint in New York State Supreme Court on Wednesday against the city paper's parent company, Creative Loafing, and its owner, private equity firm in Italia Capital Management. In court documents, Snyder's lawsuits lash out at the city paper and writer Dave McKenna, accusing both publishing numerous outrageous, false, and defamatory statements about their client. The suit contends that the city paper has published more than 50 columns that that ridiculed or verified Snyder, and it took particular umbrage with an illustration of him complete with devil horns, bushy eyebrows, and a goatee. Simply put, no reasonable person would accept the publication of these types of false, malicious, and or defamatory statements about them or their spouses, states the complaint. Nor would any reasonable person tolerate anti-Semitic character of himself or herself prominently displayed in the front pages of newspaper containing malicious allegations. For more about this story, please visit the AMLAW Daily. And we want to also bring you a message from our sponsor, Jim Thompson. Jim Thompson's program is Get Clients Now. He's a seasoned attorney and marketing coach, and he can help you take crucial steps towards increasing your firm's revenues. The Get Clients Now program employs various time-honored techniques to help you attract new business and encourage referrals. Jim is a time-honored guest on the Lawyer's Toolbox program regarding attorney marketing. To learn more about Jim Thompson and the Midwest Consulting Group, be, please visit MidwestConsultants.net and also check out their testimonials on Facebook by searching Get Clients Now. ALRPRA strongly endorses the Get Clients Now program and understands the personal component and accountability component of this course. You can get in touch with Jim Thompson today by visiting MidwestConsultants.net. Now back to our show. We do have some client uh, callers on the line, uh, and I do apologize. I'm still getting over a cold here. Um, callers, is there anyone out there who would like to ask a question? Hey, Nick, this is uh, Jim Thompson. How are you? And, and I really appreciate your guest this morning. Um, it's kind of a fascinating program to kind of uh, get a totally different look of, of what's going on over there as through the eyes of someone that um, is in tune with, with the, the real problems and things that are going on rather than just their news media. Um, just a couple of things, and, 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 and I think one of the things she mentioned was kind of the role of the U.N., um, or even the role of the U.S. involved in this. And I think, quite frankly, hopefully, we'll just the U.N. will just sit back. This seems to be more of a, an internal uh, civil uprising. And if you start bringing in, you know, the United States gets involved on one side or the other, and, and we have, uh, I guess, traditionally had a, a way of picking the wrong sides to be on. But the U.N., I think, just needs to sit back and, and just... Uh, I guess, for lack of a better term, keep any other outside influences away if they can. I'm not sure that they can do that. But I also I thought it was very interesting what she said about the military, and I think that's very true. Whoever's going to control the military is, is probably going to be the next person in power. The question I have, um, quite frankly, is is why all of a sudden now, what, what precipitated, and I may have missed it, but what precipitated uh, this massive uprising within the last, I guess, week or so. What what just uh, was the trigger point, if, if, if you can uh, maybe expound on that a little bit? That is a very, very good question, and one that many people have asked, and I think there's various answers. But first, I just wanted to, to address the U.N. issue. I think, uh, generally, you're correct that the U.N., well, the U.S. 
definitely should not get involved, absolutely, because there is a major anxiety and compliance. I address the U.N. issue. I think uh, generally... I'm sorry, I have an echo. Can I... Go ahead. You start over. Oh, okay. So I wanted to address the U.N. issue and, and, and the U.S. issue, and I do agree that the U.S. should stay out as much as possible, especially in the public view. I think that the diplomacy behind the scenes is, is essential, uh, especially since the U.S. is an ally of Mubarak, and so they have a lot of sway on him right now. Uh, but with regard to the U.N., I think right now it's fine to stay out. My concern is uh, if it returns back to what we saw for a day or two where the police was brutally abusing the people, and it, it, if it gets to that point where it just becomes a massacre, I think the U.N. may have to step in just to save lives. I'm hoping that will not be the case, uh, but I think the U.N. should be on alert, and there may need to be international intervention if, for example, the Army were to decide, the military were to decide that it's going to be on Mubarak's side and it's just going to be a war against the people who are completely unarmed. So it's only in that situation that I I would uh, support the U.N. intervening. Uh, but but generally yes, I, it is an internal issue. I think to preserve the legitimacy of it and to and to respect the Egyptians' need to work it out themselves, uh, that that there needs to be very cautious um, participation by the international community. But also there should be, as there has been, and there should be more condemnations of, for example, abduction of human rights uh, lawyers. There have been some abductions of them. They've disappeared, which is very worrisome because they could be tortured or dead by the time this is all done. You know, abuse of journalists, abductions of journalists, that type of activity should be condemned internationally, and there should be pressure on the government not to play by those dirty rules, so to speak. Now, with regard to what was the impetus behind this, this is a culmination of a very long period, uh, obviously 30 years, but really... I would say in the last six or seven years, there have been some major pushes and movements to try to bring about reform, and uh, Mubarak has responded with a very heavy fist. And some in America may have heard of Ayman Noor, who was the head of Kifaya, which means enough. And he tried to lead uh, opposition through the political process, and they they disqualified him from running through using the law. Uh, they um, accused him or prosecuted him for trumped-up charges of fraud and tax fraud or defaming the nation, all kinds of kind of petty, uh, baseless offenses. They jailed him. So he was set to start at least an opposition movement. His name, again, is Ayman Noor, and you can look him up online. But that fizzled as far as a, a coherent movement, and there was talk of, well, they really only re represent the elite or the upper middle class. They don't represent the poor and the, and the working class. So there was a big debate about that. Then the youth uh, were starting to use Facebook more and Twitter and Internet and starting to just organize, not in a structured way, but more communicating their frustrations to each other and realizing they had a lot of common grievances, realizing that it was just they were all unemployed despite having college degrees. They were all living with their parents despite wanting to get married, wanting to get on with their lives, and their lives were stuck. And so obviously they had a lot of frustration and a lot of spare time, and the more they communicated with each other through Facebook or Twitter or, or emails, uh, the more they started to recognize that, that they all had a stake, and they all wanted to change the system. And I think over time, starting from you know five, six, seven years ago, 
this has just grown and grown and grown. Now, there were two events, I think, that triggered it. Uh, the first one was last June. There was a young man named Khaled Sayed, or Khaled Saeed, who was in Alexandria and was protesting, I believe, with a group, and the police beat him to death in the street in front of everybody. And he was a 19-year-old kid, and he was beaten to death. That really upset the youth, and that upset the nation, and it was just this representation of the brutality of the regime. And the pictures went around, and there was a, I guess, a, I wouldn't call it a movement, but, but there was a group that started calling itself, We Are All Khaled Saeed. So that aroused many of these youth. And when they saw just how poorly this guy was treated and how it was just you couldn't even speak your mind without being beaten to death in public and there was total impunity uh, for the police, that, that just really got things moving, that catalyzed things. And then there was a young woman named um, uh, Asma Mahfouz, and she has a video actually on Facebook that you you should see. It's translated, and she's quite a phenomenal young woman, 26 years old, graduated from business administration, uh, call, the College of Business Administration at an Egyptian University. And she put out this video and said, we are the youth, we have to have our country, let's go out and let's just tell everyone that we're tired of this economic system, we're tired of being unemployed, we're tired of living in this corrupt society, and it's not about the Muslim Brotherhood, it's not about the opposition parties, it's not even about politics, it's about human rights and dignity and respect, and we feel completely stripped of all those things. And if and everyone here is a pessimist, you won't come out because you think it won't do any good. And Anyway, the point is she said, I'm going to go out with my sign, and I hope you guys join me on the 25th of January, which is police day. And I, I think most people thought, oh, well, just another one of these failed attempts. But miraculously, something caused so many people to come out, and then as more people came, then more people saw them and joined them, and the the flame was lit. Uh, but I have spoken to people in Egypt who admittedly did not anticipate this was going to happen at that moment in time. I mean, they knew there was huge pent-up frustration over years and years, but they just didn't think the Egyptians were going to do anything about it in this form. And I think the Tunisian revolution certainly did influence them. I mean, you can't underestimate them witnessing these Tunisians taking back their country, specifically the youth, and I think that also motivated these already frustrated and disenfranchised youth to think, wait a minute, we're Egypt, we're 80 million people. If Tunisia, this little country, can do it, why can't we do it? So it was a kind of the perfect storm. Mm -hmm. Nick, if I could jump in here. Another yes. caller? Go ahead. Yes. Hi, Professor Aziz. This is Malini Bayana. I'm a domestic relations attorney here in Chicago, and I'm just fascinated listening to what you're saying and how you're describing um, not only the catalyst or the impetus for this revolution, but, but the realities. And I just want to make a comment. Um, I am actually currently um, battling an international child abduction case where my son's in Hyderabad, India. And similar to Egypt and certainly not to the extremes that you're talking about, there was a separation of state issue over the Telangana region. And shortly after my son was abducted, um, there were all sorts of riots and revolutions with uh, the students, the, the college and um, university-level students, really leading 
um, the revolution with same sorts of things, buns and strikes and, and outright violence. And it was um, uh, for my son and myself, as, as I've been traveling back and forth to experience it, uh, it was quite traumatic. And while the youth are inspired, I'm, I, I'm, I'm wondering, and if you could just comment as to, um, b- because, as you said, they have a lot of time and they have um, have grievances and, and a need for change and a demand for change, uh, on, on what level could their uh, actions really perhaps may not be very well thought out and lead to these, these types of um, situations? Well, I think you bring up a very good point, which is what next? Mm-hmm. So they have, I think, a legitimate basis for protesting and for demanding change and demanding rights. But then what? And I think that's been a source of anxiety for many, particularly middle-class Egyptians who don't love the system, but they obviously are able to survive in it. And they... uh Most people, most Egyptians, I think there's unanimity or at least a a significant majority that agrees Mubarak has got to go. The question is, what is the platform for change? It is not easy to change a very, very corrupt system and society into one that is not corrupt. I mean, it takes legal changes. It takes normative, uh, perceptual changes. It takes behavioral changes on a societal level. How do you take an economy that's been struggling to survive in the global market from having such a high unemployment rate to, to employing its youth? So all of these things, everyone agrees to the outcome or the goals, but it's not easy, as we can see even in our own country, and we're you know one of the we are the largest economy in the world, and we're struggling to get our unemployment rate down. So, I think that in some ways it's because they aren't completely organized and they aren't an official political movement that has a platform that's competed. Is that's really the only reason why they were able to pull this off because. They caught the regime off guard. If they had tried to do it the way the Kefaya movement had enough from Ayman Noor, where he said, look, I'm going to create a secular opposition group. So I'm not the Muslim Brotherhood, so don't worry about me trying to uh, Islamicize the, the country. I just want reform. Well, that made him an easy target. They knew he was he was organized, he had a group, and they targeted them, and they eliminated them or at least marginalized them. So... It would have been impossible for them uh, from a, just a power position or lack thereof. It would have been impossible for them to, to have time and, and, and uh, means to organize themselves. So now the key is for them to trust, and this is an issue because they don't have a lot of trust, in, especially the older generation or anyone that has any association with the regime, to trust people who are very highly qualified, you know, economists, political scientists, people who, who who have the skill set, who are professionals, but are inevitably going to be older than them, to trust them to then develop the details of how to bring about the change that they want. And that's really, um, I think, the big unknown that's causing, again, a lot of people anxiety within Egypt, and I'm sure the international community, and I'm sure even the United States government, especially since, let's be honest, you know, Egypt is an ally of the United States, 
because it cooperates with us on our foreign policy in the Middle East, which is a controversial policy. And I don't think anyone who's thinking only about the United States' interests, which is what the United States government is doing, is going to say, okay, well, you can bring in whoever you want, even if that person refuses to follow our foreign policy. That's just not – I don't think America is going to allow that to happen if it can do anything about it, because it's not in its self-interest. So we have to be realistic the question is, can you find someone who, if you're speaking as an American, can you find someone who will both preserve the rights of the people and the interest of the country and also um, you know, work with the U.S. and remain in allies and turn it into a win-win situation? Um, and I think I also want to bring up the Muslim Brotherhood because that's been the big elephant in the room and the boogeyman is – from everything that I've read and everyone that I've spoken to, the Muslim Brotherhood in its at its peak would get 30% of the votes. No one has said that they would get more than that, and some people say they would only get 20%. So if you had a true democracy, they will not rule Egypt, at least from the – they won't win the presidency and they won't win the, win the majority in the parliament. That said, they will have a role to play because there is a proportion of the population that is – considered what you call political conservatives, social conservatives, and they are the counterpart to the evangelicals, the Christian evangelicals in America, who have a significant um, constituency here, but they're not the majority. And yes, there are differences between the what I'll call the social conservative Muslims and the secular progressive Muslims. There's absolutely, just like there is here. Uh, but when you have a democracy, then you play it out with the civil democratic rules of the game, and, and it's, it's just all about fair play. So that's the first point with the Muslim Brotherhood. The second point is that the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt is not the Muslim Brotherhood in Palestine or in Iraq or in whatever country. Every country in the Middle East is very different, has a very different history, and Egyptians are known for being this, the cultural center of the Middle East. They have a lot of actors and singers and uh, poets and uh, theatrical productions, which are completely opposed to a very austere, stringent, literalist form of Islam that you'll see, for example, in Saudi Arabia. The Egyptian people don't want to live like the Saudis. Women in Egypt drive, and they will never give up their right to drive, nor is it economically feasible for them not to drive. So this is this is just a non-starter, frankly. It's, it, usually when people start talking like that, it just shows they just don't understand Egypt, and they really shouldn't be talking. They should be listening. Uh, because... That's just not the culture. It's just not the culture. It's just like telling Americans um, something that would completely violate the First Amendment. It's just Americans aren't going to give up their First Amendment rights, the free speech, for example. So um, that, that's kind of something to think about, that the Muslim Brotherhood is going to certainly play a role, but the focus really should be the, about rule of law. It's really how can you t how can you structurally change that society and the rules and the constitution and the laws to make it more fair, to create a fair playing field economically and politically, and allow people to engage and have differences in a civil way, in a democratic way. I mean, the same way we have it. Of course, the Egyptian version, I don't believe in cut and paste. I'm completely against cutting and pasting democracies. It's, it's a doomed experiment. But, but there are universal principles uh, and rule of law principles that, that are applicable internationally. And, and you use, you know, the experts in Egypt, the legal experts, the judges to lead it. We don't lead it as Americans, but we could certainly be advisors and assist because we do have, we're fortunate we have a history of that and we've made that system work. I, I appreciate your, your comments about the use, and, and please, I 
I don't want anybody to uh, misconstrue what I was saying. I, I applaud their their energy. I applaud um, you know their goals, and I think oftentimes um, it is our youth, our future generations, that really hold authority accountable. I the question I guess um, really is so how how do we protect them? Because similar to the situation in Egypt. In India, Hyderabad is uh, currently right now. I mean, there, there is a mistrust of law enforcement. Um, you know, for good reason. There, there can be uh, bribes and, and police brutality, as well as, as you mentioned, Mubarak's personality, the, the charming, um, media savvy leader. I mean, that, that's rampant in one of our largest democracies in the world, which is India, and um, which has often been characterized as a democracy. Rather than a democracy, so so how how do we support the youth and and you know is there something that the U.S. can play in terms of that role? Um, it, it was really my question because I think their motives and and intent are are good. Right. No, I think that's a. I mean, I think that's a, a great question. I think one one important step that is overlooked is first for us to try to avoid uh, the very common American approach of not it's not conscious and it's not intentional but we do tend to be a bit patronizing towards developing countries and not appreciating that they also have very sophisticated understandings of the world and often know many more languages than we do and have been much better traveled at least the ones who who have the means to do so so one one thing to do is to develop a peer-to-peer relationship with them where we're not trying to help them, we're not trying to save them. We're, assemb- we're essentially trying to build relationships with them, and they will let you know when they need help or when they don't or, or when they'd like to reach out. But to develop human relationships, and whether it's students to students or professional groups or business ties, but but taking a very different approach that's not – uh, kind of a parent-child relationship, which is very common from Western countries to Eastern countries. And I don't think it's intentional. I think everybody has very good intentions, but it kind of comes with being the superpower and it kind of comes with being in positions of privilege that that when you want to do something positive, you you kind of, it's more driven by pity or, or sympathy rather than just interest in having kind of an equal relationship with them. So I think that's one thing. And then and through that building of these equal relationships, information will be shared. And so, for example, if there will be rule of law exchanges between attorneys in Egypt and attorneys in in America, or if there will be social, you know, nonprofits working together and taking out the USAID element, which is very foreign policy driven and not results oriented. I mean, USAID is known for it does good work, but there are strings attached, and there is a very specific foreign policy. Objective, and that's understood, and that's the re- that's just the way it works. Which is why, for example, independent nonprofits are really important because they will have less pressures to 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 pick who they work with based on their political viewpoints or their views on America, but focus more on what they're trying to do to help Egyptian society, for example. So, I guess I'm not giving you a specific answer because obviously it, it just is very fact specific and it depends on the situation but i i do think that there needs to be a philosophical shift in the way that we as americans look at egyptians or anyone in the middle east or in developing countries where one we accept that we have a lot to learn from them and two that 
it's really just about developing relationships and then things happen naturally after that. And, and one thing I wanted to point out, which I think has been very, very good for the West, is that this entire situation in Egypt, I think, has educated a lot of Westerners in Europe and in the United States about the nuances of Egyptian society, about the youth and about how savvy they are, uh, both technologically and also, you know, politically. And they've seen so many different types of Egyptians speak on the media now, men and women. They've seen scarved women who are feminists and who are political leaders and who are out there sacrificing their life, which completely um, combats or eliminates the false stereotype that covered Muslim women are weak and submissive and passive. So I think that has been a very positive silver lining in all this. I mean, I know all of these things about Egypt. I'm an Egyptian-American. I've traveled and I've studied and I've lived there, so I, I know these things, but a lot of Americans don't, and I think that is um, I think that's very good for the West to see that in a, in a real and authentic and, and kind of a, a time where, where this is historical. I thank you so much for saying that. That is such a very positive comment. And um, I know that when I posted some Facebook messages in Arabic, I expected a few people to um, be shocked or be scared. Uh, you know, so many. There, it's it's un, it's challenging when uh, many people here in the in the United States will react negatively when they see Arabic writing and don't really know why. Um, the other thing, so it's it, seriously good opportunity to expose the positive aspects of Egyptian culture and so many great things um, to impress upon uh, those of us here watching in the U.S., especially watching the media, not being patronizing and not taking that approach. It's a very, very good statement. I'm so glad you shared that. The one question that I have um, that we haven't discussed yet and what a lot of people are hearing about and thinking is a major issue, uh, the Suez Canal, What what's What's the the word on the street um, regarding the Suez Canal? I mean, a lot of uh, news reporters and media here in the U.S. Uh, talk about the flow of oil. Right. Well, I think this goes back to the, what's in the interest of Egypt. And I would be hard-pressed to find someone who would declare that closing the Suez Canal is in the best interest of Egypt economically, specifically when right now the root of these problems, the root of or the impetus behind all these demonstrations is economic. It is purely economic. People can't find jobs. They're unemployed. Uh, they're below the poverty line at 45, 50 percent of the country. Uh, and so I, unless somebody rules the country that is a dictator that's worse than Mubarak, which obviously is not the objective of, of all of this sacrifice and all of this uh, heartache and, and, and effort, that is something that I can't – it's not even something that's come across my mind, frankly. Um, it, Egypt can't afford to do that, and there's really no reason why it would. Uh, and, and it sounds like, I guess, the imp the implication of these types of questions is really, well, what about the Arab-Israeli conflict? I mean, I think that's just an indirect way of saying, well, will Egypt do this to punish Israel or punish the United States for supporting Israel? And I think the short answer is that no, because Egypt – benefits from having peace with Israel just as much as Israel does too. It benefits from having a relationship with the United States and making itself relevant 
in the region and making itself important. And it also benefits Egypt by by eliminating that source of um, of a political problem and of a military problem, so that then it can, for example, focus on its uh, economic problems. And one thing that a lot of Americans don't appreciate is that. Oftentimes what the regime has done in the past, and other regimes do this too in the Middle East, is they use the Arab-Israeli conflict to distract their people from the economic problems that they're facing. And so when they can see that things are about to boil over from frustration on domestic issues, they'll try to distract their populations by focusing on international issues. So, And that's not to say that Egyptians don't care about the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. They, don't, they, they certainly are very concerned about particularly what's happening with Palestinians. But how they think, how they're going to address that and how they're going to ask their government to deal with it is not, in my opinion, going to be in an extreme uh, way that would harm the country. Uh, and that said, I think that there is certainly an, a potential that, that whoever comes into power, if they're democratically elected, uh, will maybe be more, how can I put it, uh, objective or maybe... Have a, may have a different position on the Arab-Israeli conflict that's not diametrically 180 degrees the opposite, but may start may not be as compliant, as mm. appeasing. And, and, you know, depending on what position you're looking at, that might be a good or a bad thing. But, but I think the bottom line is Egypt is not going to, I don't believe, is going to retract on its peace agreement with Israel. I don't think they're going to close the Suez Canal. Um, and I don't think that they're going to be Iran by any stretch of the imagination because the people are very different. Uh, Shia and Sunni, is, there's a big difference in kind of the history and in, in, in what the impetus was for this. The Shah is different from Mubarak, et cetera. So I don't think this is a fair comparison. Um, so that that's just my assessment now. And that all is – I make these conclusions or I make these predict, predictions based on an assumption that whoever comes into power will be democratically elected. They will not be a dictator that is either secular or Islamist. So hopefully that will be the case for everyone's benefit. I agree. I hope Can that I is also the case. Jim, go ahead. We have a couple. We we need to yeah, uh, wrap up pretty soon. Question. Yeah, one quick question. We uh, obviously see all the reports coming out of Cairo. What's going on in the rest of the country? We We don't hear much about that, and I was just curious as to what – um, the reaction is in the rest of, of, of Egypt, the rest of the country there? Well, I think Alexandria is pretty much like Cairo. It's not getting as much coverage, but I think you can safely assume that they have just as much you know, protests and activity. And I have read that many other towns also um, are experiencing protests. I don't think it's at the same size and magnitude. And many people have at least tried to come into Cairo. Interestingly, when they were when they had their million man march which turned into i think a 2 million person march they uh, the egyptian government stopped all the trains in the country to try to stop people from coming to cairo so that's the length and the extent to which they'll go to 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 stop the people from speaking their you know from expressing themselves but i think i've heard a lot of reports that it's happening all over egypt uh just not to the same magnitude uh, and frankly, you know, one thing that's been really underreported on in American media before all of this happened was there has been a buildup, and this is kind of goes back to the question of what caused this. There have been a lot of labor strikes and a labor protest by very poor, poor working class people in smaller towns or in the outskirts of Cairo. Uh, they haven't gotten a lot of media attention. 
but but that was happening more and more often. So I think that also has something to do with why that portion of Egyptian society is coming out because they weren't part of this youth-led um, protest movement. But as I said, it started to snowball, and the the workers have been for a while now very. Uh, upset about their inability to make enough money to just feed their families. I mean, they're they're almost below subsistence level. So, uh, so I think it's it's safe to assume that many other towns are are certainly uh experiencing similar things just not at the same magnitude. Mhm. We look forward to finding out what's going to happen in the next coming weeks. Uh do you have any predictions, Ms. Aziz, on what we can uh expect in the coming weeks and the coming months? Oh, I wish I could predict it accurately. I, I, everything I say is, is purely speculation, but a few things are happening that, that might be indicative of, of what to expect. Is One, the New York Times is reporting that the U.S. is working on a proposal uh, for Mubarak to resign immediately. So that may, if, those, if that's true and if they are successful, uh, that may lead, you know, we may be talking in a week and Mubarak is no longer the president. Obviously, the other option is the opposite extreme, is that the, somehow he persuades the military to come down hard and this turns into a massacre. I, I think that's more unlikely, especially as the international community is watching, and I think it would invite the UN and international intervention right away, or I would hope so. Um, so that's, uh, you know, it's it's just so hard to predict. Every day is different. It's peaceful one day. It's violent the next day. I think that Mubarak right now has finally... I believe, has finally realized that it's time for him to leave. I think he was in denial until maybe a day or two ago, and and that was driving him. But I think now he's realized he wants to go, and it's really about what deal he can cut. He's a very proud man. He's been the president for 30 years and feel he doesn't – he has already said, and I think I believe him, he does not want to be thrown out of the country the way Ben Ali was, you know, with his tail between his legs. I think he wants to leave with dignity and with pride, and he doesn't want to be exiled, and I'm sure he also doesn't want to be prosecuted. And so I anticipate that he's going to try to cut a deal um, with uh, whoever's coming in, the transitional government and the Americans and the military, to say, okay, fine, I'm going to leave, but I'm leaving with my respect and I'm leaving with impunity, uh, or with immunity, excuse me, um, and I will not allow you, you know, you can't just kick me out of the country like some criminal. So right. It's Right. I look forward to a follow-up show, and we will be following this story and bring you a follow-up in the next coming weeks. Thank you so much, Sahir, for being on today. I really appreciate your valuable time. Thank you. I hope everyone in- enjoyed the conversation. All right. Wonderful. And, again, your website, if people want to contact you privately offline or find out more information? Yes, it's www.saharazizlaw.com, which is S-A-H-A-R-A-Z, as in zebra, I-Z as in zebra, L-A-W.com. And you can uh, go to that website, and there's also a way to contact me through there. Excellent. Thank you so much. I just wanted to quickly say I appreciated your comments about Egyptian women, and I think the same holds true for Indian women. Um, And so absolutely, I I echo your thoughts, and, and thank you for for making that statement. Thank you. I want to also yeah, so let, thank you. 
I was going to say thank you also. I think, uh, and thank you, Nick, for having her on. I think gonna, I'm going to be looking at the various newscasts with a different different eye on certain things now. So thanks again for, for uh, what you've had to say, and, and also, Nick, for having her on. Well, that, again, is our goal, to bring information from people who are following it the closest and bring, again, the whole reason that we bring you these shows is to bring everyone together on, you know, obviously our show is, uh, you know, aimed towards, uh, you know, legal practice and substantive issues, um, and we appreciate the opportunity to bring you a program with uh, wonderful guests when we have such important issues that are going on that affect all of us. Some upcoming shows I wanted to let you know about quickly uh, and as well. You can find those on our website, alrpra.com forward slash law talk radio forward uh, shows that we have. We have Alan Sims, who's on uh, February 8th. He was recently on MSNBC uh, as well as he's been published in many places regarding his role in litigation with bank and mortgage fraud uh, regarding an, an individuals who sued Bank of America and prevailed. So that will be February 8th, Alan Sims at 3 o'clock Central. 3 o'clock Central on Thursday, the 10th of February, Mary Erlane, business coach Mary Erlane, will be back talking about effective personal productivity. Again, by way of disclaimer, we want to remind you that this is a general information program and the advice shared on this show does not constitute legal advice. Results may vary and are based on specific facts and location and Communication with our attorney guests among callers and guests on this show does not give rise to an attorney-client relationship. If you have further questions, you're always encouraged to consult with an attorney and or professional in your area. This programming is politically neutral and objective. Counterpoints to views expressed on this show are always welcome. Finally, all callers remain confidential and all rights to this broadcast are reserved by ALRPRA Incorporated. As I stated earlier, these law talk radio broadcasts are programmed to bring our attorney and non-attorney audiences the tips, tools, and practice area information they can be used to be better informed practitioners and consumers of legal services. With guests and listeners located worldwide, we appreciate the opportunity to use this socially networked radio program to bring people together and share collective intelligence. Again, this is Nick Augustine for ALRPRA Incorporated, and we thank you all for your time. <laughs>